from the letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, writes the Apostle Paul. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better. And yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. This is not the message a preacher would select for Pack the Pew Sunday. Numerous studies have been done on the effectiveness, or I probably should say on the ineffectiveness of what was called, it's kind of gone out of fashion as far as the label, but crusade evangelism. And crusade evangelism, the the classic examples would be the Lewis Palau crusade, which we were a part of many years ago down in Augusta, where you gather, you know, thousands of people together and they hear the evangelist, in this case, Lewis Palau or Billy Graham or, you know, Billy Sunday back in the day, whoever it happens to be. But there's this massive wave and churches all over the place are involved and people are encouraged to bring their friends and their relatives and everything else. And I don't know what that would include, everything else, but bring them all come and they come and they listen to the evangelist. And then there is a a clear presentation of the salvation message given with an invitation to receive Christ. Well, what has been validated through many studies of the effectiveness of crusade evangelism is that from the early weeks after a person makes a decision to receive Christ, as we phrase that reception of the salvation invitation, going out five years from that moment of decision, there is a sharp decline in the percentage of people who made that decision to remain abiding and growing and faithful. So what is the reality of such conversions through crusade evangelism? My statistics are from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Six percent of the people who come forward in an evangelistic crusade are any different in their beliefs or behavior one year later. Did you get the thrust of that? Only 6% one year after the fact are any different in their beliefs and their lifestyle choices. After five years, a mere 3% of those who made a decision at such an event are still involved in a faith community meaning a church of one stripe or another, Bible-believing, of course. Now, why might this be? It's kind of the million-dollar question, which is why so many surveys and studies have been done over the years. 
I'm going to give you my opinion, and that's all it is, is an opinion this morning. And it's just one opinion of one reason in the slice of a multi-reasoned pie. You see, every human being is looking for what I'm going to term paradise. Every. I said every. Every individual is looking for paradise that happens to be part of our being created in the image and the likeness of God, that hunger for eternity that we are told of in Romans chapter 1, that everyone is born with. The most hardened atheist is looking for a better life. And when you itemize the descriptions of what the better life looks like to all kinds of people, you would find many of the same qualities of what heaven promises. So here lies the quintessential weakness of not just crusade evangelism, but I would assert the majority of evangelistic presentations in general. The focus of the evangelistic message is almost always from the standpoint of the quality of your life will be enhanced if you come to Jesus. Are you depressed? Is your family falling apart? Do you live with a hurt that robs you of energy and joy? Do you long for peace? Then come to Jesus. Two weeks ago, I don't know if you were aware of this, NFL quarterback by the handle of RG3, Robert Griffin III, He got in trouble with the NFL for wearing a shirt to a press conference that said, no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, no peace. Now, there is absolute truth in that message. And I commend the athlete for doing what he did, or at least attempting to do so. There is absolute truth in that message, as well as what I already said about, are you depressed? Is your family falling apart? You know, do you have a heartache? All of that, there is truth in all of that. But a salvation message, now here is the fine line. A salvation message that has at its core the promise of your best life now is a disaster in waiting. What do I mean? If the promise of your best life now is why you signed on with Jesus, I guarantee you are destined for disillusionment, to say the least. If it is your best life now that you are looking for, hear me plainly, Christianity is not the answer. If brown sugar sprinkles on warm, chewy kick cookies is why you are enamored with Jesus, you are only a very small step away from crushing disappointment. On the other hand, if you are hungering, if you have that divine thirst for reliable truth, a truth that is relevant to all matters of life and godliness, and you are longing for the promise of an all-powerful God who will be at your side every step of the way as you go through life's 
heartaches, sorrows, disappointments, and tragedies, then Christianity is the only faith that can deliver. If you want to find out who you are in the world, if you want to find out who the God of heaven is and whether or not there is a heaven, and if there is, if you will be there, following Christ is not an answer, it is the answer. If you want wisdom in raising your children in a belief system that is tried and true and eternal, you can stop your searching. In Philippians, Paul, I call him the rock star, formerly called Saul. He was a rock star because he was part and parcel of the murder of the Christians through stoning. Get it? Yeah, never mind. And where we pick up in the book of Philippians is that the Apostle Paul is presently confined to house arrest and his freedom to move at whim has been curtailed by the rulers of Rome. We've been reading his very personal letter to some of his favorite people. And his confidence in God's presence and his confidence in God's power is inspiring. And yet for all his talk about deliverance, he never presumes a cliché, happy ending, at least in terms that we North American Christians tend to think of when we think of the faithful or victorious Christian life. The Christ followers at Philippi, over the years that they've known Paul, they've bonded with him, but not because he's a cream puff preacher, but because they could rely on him to speak the truth even when it hurt. And they've come to appreciate him becoming quite involved in his support to carry out the good news of Jesus as the one and only way to a time and a place that is exactly the kind of time and place that every human longs for in the depths of their souls. Since Paul has given his life to them, so that they can have this hope, he consequently is not at all shy about making some demands on them. In verse 27, he demands that they live in such a way that their philosophy of life is revealed in their living of life. Or more simply put, simply that their faith can actually be seen by others. Which means what? Among other things. Which means this, means this idea of religion is a private matter. You do your religion thing in the closet. Contrary to everything Jesus was about, because he said it more simply. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Privatized religion is probably one of the more successful sales pitches of Satan himself. So Paul demands that the lives of the Christ followers must be devoted to, number one, unity of purpose in standing for Christ. This is all review, by the way. This means when they come to church to be a part of a faith community, their focus is to be on their common divine mission. And that divine mission must take priority over all other reasons for which they belong to that faith community. Oh, how the North American church needs to come to grips with what that means and how that's played out. 
It means, number two, not retreating, not shrinking back, not softening the truth of God's Word. It means, thirdly, not accommodating other opinions about Jesus or the Bible and the Gospel. Well, you know, we have to be tolerant. We have to be respectful. Yes, we do have to be respectful, but that doesn't mean accepting or tolerating. And number four, it means not being alarmed or afraid of the enemies of the cross of Christ. These are all part of our culture today. Duh, right? And the last one that I just read is always before us. Since September 11th, 2001, we are all aware of the new level of challenge of that last mandate that Paul gives. For most of us in the USA, this challenge has not generally been marked with the kinds of violence that is being carried out daily in the rest of the world. But there certainly seems to be an escalation of violence on our own shores and in our own neighborhoods, doesn't there? The morning that I wrote that, by the way, I started this last week because I wasn't preaching last Sunday. The story came out about Colleen Hufford, the Oklahoma woman whose life was taken after Alton Nolan, also known as Yaquim Israel, had been attempting to convert his fellow employees to Islam. It's a compelling reason to convert. Convert or die. Hmm. The evil worldwide is indeed escalating. It's not just a figment of our imagination. And the evil in our neighborhoods is growing. And certainly the Lord is aware of all of these things. And yet, with sanctified minds, He expects us to use sanctified reasoning to see things as they are and to act wisely in light of these things. When Jesus was speaking about the times in which the people were living in his day, Luke records the following in chapter 12, verses 54 through 56. Jesus says, look, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it turns out. When you see a south wind blowing, you say, it's going to be a hot one today, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites! You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but here it is. Why do you not analyze this present time? (laughs) Let me paraphrase this. Why are you so oblivious to the present time and why aren't you making preparations in light of that? Now, the current state of Islam is only one reason, only one, as to why we have security here at faith. Churches all over the country, churches that I visit when I go to Team 500, churches that I've been to elsewhere, churches in our own community and in our neighborhoods, more and more have security. And many of those churches even hire local police 
for Sunday mornings who are in uniform and armed. How many of you know Ken Graves? I know most of you guys should. Pastor up at the powerful Calvary Chapel in Hamden. I was at a uh, thing out of state where Ken Graves was one of the uh, speakers. And he's a dynamic speaker if you've ever heard him. And there on his hip, he packs. He wasn't because he was in a state that's not wouldn't accept that. But he packs, he's telling us, he packs his 9mm Glock Sunday morning in the pulpit. He calls it my Glock for my flock. I kid you not. I know of another pastor, I know very well right here in our community, who is packing heat while he's preaching. For my liking, and that's all it is, that's a little over the top, okay? But we live in a very nasty day, as I mentioned last week. With all of the domestic violence in our neighborhoods and all of the custody battles in our homes, we are compelled here to try and be preemptive of any serious issues. And so we have sound procedures here for protecting the most vulnerable among us. And we also want parents to be able to come in here to worship and have peace of mind that those children who are removed and are on the other side of the building or are out in a completely different building, that they can worship with complete peace of mind that their children are being protected Just for kicks, I went online yesterday. It's been a while since I've done this because it's kind of depressing. But I just looked up the sex offender registry for Waterville. Do you know that there is a sex offender for every 283 people in Waterville? Those are only the registered ones, mind you. Okay? We live in an evil, nasty time. But Paul says in spite of all this, Of course, it would be a little different context in his day. He says, don't be alarmed by the enemies of the cross. Or don't be afraid. And so exercising due diligence concerning the enemies of the cross is preparing for them and the potential for problems. Now, I'm going to assume that most parents get their children vaccinated against various diseases because they have faith that such diseases are real. And so they prepare against the potential danger. And so, not being naive about the world we live in is not having a lack of faith, but is because we have faith and we believe what the Bible tells us about the world and about human nature. Paul's inspired counsel is not to be focused only on physical violence, but also not to be focused on violence of conscience as well, but not to be ignorant of them and to make preparation. What do I mean by violence of conscience? Again, contextualizing Paul's words, putting them in a North American frame of reference, for the majority of American Christians were warned against not only those who might do physical harm to us, but not fearing those who do not share biblical ideology or a biblical worldview or biblical values. 
I'm thinking of people like David Green, the owner and CEO. I think he's a CEO. Anyway, the owner of Holly Hobby. And the late Truett Cathy, who passed just a few weeks ago, the owner of Chick-fil-A. And I trust that most of you are probably familiar with their plight and standing against the Obama administration in the case of Holly Hobby. What did I say? Holly Hobby. Hobby Lobby. Something with hobbies and lobbies and hollies and all that stuff in it. I don't know. But we're probably much less familiar with Jack Phillips. Jack Phillips is the baker who did not buckle after Colorado's Civil Rights Commission upheld a judge's ruling that it was criminal for the baker to deny making a wedding cake for a homosexual couple. And such antagonism to our beliefs isn't just restricted to adults. We know the stories of the student sent home to change his shirt because it had the ghastly pro-life message on it. I support life. Or the pupil with a writing assignment, which ended up having a Christian theme, which was deemed unacceptable by the teacher. These are all realities of living in a world that is Satan's domain. So when Paul writes this church about his current situation, it's instructive to note that he does not presume a happy ending in terms that we tend to think in. Which is why verse 28 gives clarity to us about the two concluding, or by the two concluding verses of this chapter. He says, in no way, the verse before it, be alarmed by your opponents, verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, stop, just stop there, if you're trying to boost your numbers and get those hands to go up to receive Jesus. <laughs> for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also Suffer for his sake. Wait, I thought the gospel meant good news. <laughs> yeah, it is. But you've got to be honest about the whole picture and the whole story. Let me, from the original language, give you a more precise translation of what I just read. This is very accurate to the Koine Greek. Suffering for Jesus is, in fact, a privilege. It is a blessing, or you could say it is a gift that God has given to the believer for Christ's sake. Let me ask you a question. And this gets back to the theme of impotent evangelism. What would the Church of Christ worldwide look like if the full gospel, if the whole gospel was being preached across the board? How would church attendance and commitment to a faith community be affected by that message? How many megachurches would there be? How many superstar authors and speakers would there be and how many TV ministries would even still be in existence if the habit of the church from the very beginning of the church had been to preach a biblical theology, 
that is balanced between law and grace, that is balanced between discipline and mercy, that is balanced between tough love and cheap grace, right on top of a biblical view of the daily grind and what it's really like for even believers in a fallen world where the kingdom of heaven may be among us, but the kingdom of heaven is not here. Yet. Ah. Yet. Part and parcel of God setting us apart That is, by the way, what the word holy means. It means to be set apart. Part and parcel of God setting us apart for eternity with Him is setting us apart for suffering with Him. Hmm. And let's make sure Paul writes that we understand that the nature of the kind of suffering that he's talking about is directly a result of being engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I italicized conflict on the wall because Paul is not speaking here, you see, about some kind of generalized suffering to gain glory points with God as was the whole thrust behind what was called the ascetic movement in the 4th century. Asceticism was the, the, the belief that, that, that the more I suffered, the more I made myself miserable in the name of God, the more glory points I will have getting stored up for me. Now, it's putting it in a very crass way, but that's really a pretty good statement of what the whole ascetic movement was the more deprived they could make themselves, the more holy they were, or so they thought. But Paul's not speaking of a self-imposed suffering of shedding all worldly comforts, thinking that in achieving earthly emptiness, we somehow achieve otherworldly enlightenment. That's not Christianity. Do you know what that is? That's Buddhism. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4:19 Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Meaning what? Meaning that the suffering of which Paul speaks, inspired of the Holy Spirit, is the suffering that can be expected as a result of doing the work of Christ on earth. What a different thrust that is, to what is so glibly, even if truthfully, but superficially preached as the gospel of Jesus. It's the suffering followers of Christ. It's the suffering followers of Christ will experience when thinking and acting like Jesus. The idea of suffering for the faith is an expected 
part of the walk of the Christian faith. And that's well borne out in Scripture. Let me give you just a smattering. This is in no way comprehensive. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the followers of Jesus were beaten for merely speaking the name of Jesus. And you know what their response to that was? (laughs) They celebrated that they, quoting Acts, had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. In Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, again also known as the Apostle Paul, was called by God with God telling Ananias, who was going to be the messenger, to go talk to Paul. He tells Ananias that Paul is going to be shown just how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In Romans 8, Paul writes that the proof of being adopted into the family of Christ is the suffering that one experiences for being and acting like they are a part of the family. To the church at Thessaloniki, Paul reminds them that he told them in advance that they were going to suffer affliction. And the rest of that passage in Thessalonians 3 says, And so it came to pass. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells his partner in ministry that he suffers for preaching the good news of Jesus. And in the very next chapter, Paul invites Timothy to join him in the hardship that comes with being a soldier of Christ. Man, come on! Where's the feel good? Where's the bubble gum? Where's the cotton candy? And in some ways, the piece of the resistance in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. (laughs) Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. No. I saw Nicolas Cage just a couple days ago. (laughs) No, I didn't. Only because they weren't showing it up here. Anyway, if you didn't know, Left Behind is now out in yet another iteration I was only going to go see it, and I plan to see it because Nicolas Cage is in it, not because of the subject matter. But it will be interesting, again, to see the take on that whole thing. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. But be faithful unto your victorious deliverance. No! It's not what it says, is it? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, not me, (laughs) let him hear. Uh -uh. What the Spirit says to whom? To the churches throughout history. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. doesn't say you'll be spared from the first death, does it? Hmm. In our culture, many Christians, when they hear something they consider to be negative in the preaching of God's Word, they run from it. I mean, literally, run from it. I knew a woman who warned me in advance that when I start preaching on Revelation, don't expect to see her in church. I'm dead serious. And she was true to her word for the most part. They just, you know, I... They might love their particular church that they are in at the moment, 
But let the preacher start talking about persecution and about suffering and about the tribulation and about the end times, and they disappear oftentimes seeking another church where they can, in their words, be built up. Always oh, sounds so spiritual. Which what it really means is just give me cheery stories, upbeat messages, smiley miracles, and happy endings. Which goes back to the very beginning now of this message and why 97% of those who sign on to follow Jesus because of a best life now gospel are nowhere to be found in five years. Hmm. Well, as most of us know, and something we cannot ever lose sight of, is that there is, there is a happy ending. There is a gloriously happy ending for the faithful. And the many words in the Bible that are not directly about that happy ending, and that's many, many, many of them, although that streak of the happy ending runs from Genesis to Revelation, in the gradual revealing of God's plan through the Savior Jesus to come and bring that happy ending. But so many of the words in this Bible are about the pitiful state of humankind showing epoch after epoch. That means age after age after age of how lost humankind is and how impossible a happy ending is. You didn't hear me wrong and I didn't misstate it. How impossible a happy ending is without a loving God who sends the loving Savior to rescue impossibly lost people. But the many will kick and scream and protest and reject the only Savior of their souls. Why? Because many are called and few are chosen. Uh, But Christians in many other parts of the country, excuse me, Christians in many other countries don't see the suffering passages and they don't see the bad news of the Bible the same way we do. (laughs) Why? Because they're living it. And for many millions of people, that's all they've known from the moment they took their first breath in this world. For them, it is the norm. And when a Christian is living where your allegiance to the way, the truth, and the life may cost you or has cost you your home or your land or your means of earning a living or your daily bread, you tend to cling to the happy ending of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on behalf of sinful man and the glory of thy kingdom come because we know that his tomb is empty and those Christians know that all that is and that's not to demean that in the least is that is only the down payment of all that awaits for the supreme proof that the enemy has been defeated and death won't hold you down And instead of whining, they are compelled to lift their voice in victory, making their praises loud. (laughs) 
I had a little episode the other day at Starbucks. And I was... <laughs> and it caused me to wonder if Nagme Abedini, if you don't know she is, she's the wife of Pastor Saeed Abedini, who's been incarcerated in Iran and beaten so many times on his deathbed for being a Christian and preaching Jesus. She's living in this country now waiting for the release of her husband, she prays and hopes, with many hundreds of thousands of people around the world. But I wonder if Nagme Abedini spends much time on Facebook reading the posts of Christians' trials and tribulations in this country. I wonder if Miriam Ibrahim, leaving a Starbucks drive through has ever blurted out, why can't they ever make my non-fat, extra-hot peppermint mocha latte extra hot? Oh, the injustice of it. I suffer for thee, Lord. <laughs> and it <laughs> Oh, yeah, I really enjoy myself not. But I do appreciate grace. One wonders, who is the truly blessed? Who is the biblically blessed? We here in the United States of America or they in the oppressive lands under tyrannical, demon-possessed rulers? I'm going to have Ben Franklin come on up and close our time in prayer. Paul's next words are, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. <sighs> full gospel, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Come, thy kingdom. But it's not here yet. And if you're living with that view to the kingdom of God, being here now in your midst, if you just believe, 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 if you take that lucky rabbit's foot, might be a favorite verse, you just say it enough times with squinting hard enough that your life is just going to pristine be magic in all smiles and cheers. It goes contrary. It goes contrary to the heart and the core of what we are told in God's wisdom. But let us not lose sight of that day and let all the crud and the junk here and now not cause us to pursue heaven on earth that much harder, but to long that much more diligently for thy kingdom come. And to be willing to suffer for being like Jesus, not for being a royal jerk. Hey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the true gospel, for this chance to, to, to think about persecution, not only around the world, but what it looks like in our lives. 
May we embrace the thought of, of being persecuted in our own small ways and with uh, friends and family at work. Uh, when we leave the church, may we, may we view that persecution, however small it is in our lives, as, as an honor in our walk with you. May we keep that in our mind as we go out today and throughout the rest of the week. Uh, and may we just live our lives imitating you, Lord, living the way you would have us live. In Jesus' name, amen.